Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. What is up, everybody, and welcome to the All-NBA Show, part of the All-City Podcast Network, coming to you on a Thursday, following up on some Wednesday games. I'm your host, Adam Matas, and I am joined by my esteemed colleague, Tim Legler. Legs, how are we doing today? I'm good, man. I love planes, trains, and automobiles day, but that's okay. I'll, anything anything for you, Adam. I'll do whatever it <laughs> takes, man. People really don't know it, Legs. You're the hardest working guy in showbiz, man. A different city every show, uh, on, on a dozen different shows, man. You're working hard out here. Appreciate you, brother. Today involved two Ubers, a train ride, a rental car, and an 80-mile drive to get here on time. So I'm proud of myself for making it happen, man. It's only 11 o'clock Mountain Time, too, man. That's, a, that's, that's it. a full day. That's for it. Most I'm people. not done either for the day. I got <laughs> I got to get to New York later tonight. So yeah, it's it never wow. ends, man. But 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 the good thing is there were some good, there were some fun games last night, man. I yep. think we're going to start with one that was super entertaining. Yep. No doubt about it. Uh, last night, the Clippers come back against the Warriors in the fourth quarter to grab a win. Two teams, very interesting matchup. We'll talk about that one later. We also have the Mavs extending the win streak to six games and Victor Wimbanyama continuing to do really cool stuff on the basketball court. And we're going to start with the Pacers catching up on the Siakam-Halliburton pairing. Now that they've been together, I believe, for nine games, they beat the Raptors last night in a matchup of Siakam's former team. But first, we are presented, as always, by DraftKings Fantasy Sports. Check out what DraftKings has to offer this season with code ALLNBA because life's more fun when you're in on the action. DraftKings, the crown is yours. If you have a gambling problem, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Agent eligibility restrictions apply. Void were prohibited. See DraftKings.com for details. Let's start with this one. The Pacers uh, go into Toronto, Stiakam's homecoming, visiting his old team, the Toronto Raptors, and they get a win, 127-125. to 125. This was an interesting one statistically because you look at it and – the Raptors had 40 fast break points, 84 points in the paint, and they lost this game. What happened in this one, Legs? Yeah, this one was all about execution down the stretch because Toronto, you know, at one point had a 10-point lead, but then most of the fourth quarter, it was it was really tight with, with it, both teams within a possession or two of each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just thought Indiana got the shots they wanted to, and they got them to fall. I guess that's more important because Siakam – made a couple of plays late in this game that he re- made something out of nothing. But that's kind of who he is, right? He takes right. these weird angles, and he's got, you know, he, these weird drives. He turns wing catches into post-ups, like, more than any player I've ever seen. And then he he, you know, he goes up in traffic, and he, and he gets something up off the glass to go. And on the other end, it was mostly about, I thought, the ineffective shooting of R.J. Barrett was something that really cost them. I mean – he missed a wide-open three that really would have mattered. He missed two free throws at a critical time late in the game. And then he missed a potential shot that could have tied it right in front of the right in front of the rim, about an eight-footer after he kind of dipped in, got some separation. I mean, it's an uncontested little lean-back shot in the lane to tie the game. So I thought he had opportunities uh, that he failed to capitalize on in Indiana. They got what they needed to on the other end. And, and it was you know, mainly Siakam, I thought, down the stretch. But the thing I love about the Pacers, Adam, I want to talk about this today about them that stood out to me. What I think I love about their team, and I really do love watching them, is the the amount of empowerment that everybody on the roster has. Everybody touches the ball on this team. It's not, you know, it's like some teams that are star heavy in this league. It's just constantly come up the floor, give it to the next star, and then like let him go, either ISO, pick and roll, whatever it may be. And then when they make a pass out of it, they're expecting that guy to shoot it. That's not really how Indiana plays. Like, everybody touches it. And you would think with a dominant point guard that puts up the kind of assist numbers that Halliburton does, that wouldn't be the case. That He would be like this ball-dominant guy that, you know, either wants to shoot the ball or get an assist and wants you to shoot it when he passes it to you. He doesn't really play that way, man. He, he, he empowers other guys by giving it to them earlier. And I, there are so many players on this team that, that, that come on the floor or start the game that – just are included in what they're doing every trip. 
And that, I think, is why I really love watching this team play. I think yeah. they embody a lot of what I believe good offensive basketball is supposed to look like. And um, in a really tight game, they're missing, by the way, shorthanded. No Miles Turner, no Benedict right. Matherin. So they're shorthanded. So they're playing a you know re rebuilt Toronto team on the road without two starter, two, you know, two key guys. This is a great win for Indiana, particularly when they several times it looked like this thing was going to get away from them and they just fought back, finally take the lead, and then it becomes just trading possessions sort of game at the end. Indiana, you know, executed when they had to and the Raptors were not able to. Also, Neesmith, by the way, injured in this game and so not closing out for them. So another guy that goes down uh, throughout the course of this game. I like your point, and I want to stay on it, though, about this is a team that gets the ball popping, even though they have this heliocentric figure in Tyrese Halliburton. How does this happen? Because the NBA over the last 10 years, you had the Golden State Warriors who broke the mold. They were a ball movement team. But all the teams that kind of came after them, the Houston Rockets mold, you get all these teams where the ball is in one guy's hands, and it's like, all right, we're going to play around them. And you don't get a lot of turnovers when you play that way. You can play a little bit more controlled. But I always am curious about how a team that has such a dynamic offensive player does is so – because it's not just one guy. Like, if he gets the ball out of his hands, sometimes he won't get it back. You, you think you wouldn't get it back. That never happens on this team. Everybody seems to – get the ball moving and i just i'm always curious how that happens for a team in the nba because it takes so many guys committing to it yeah and i don't think necessarily like this is something that's mandated by rick carlisle i mean a lot in a lot of ways as a head coach in the league you're you are really a victim of what your best offensive players are like and you, and you have yeah. to adjust to how they want to play I think this is more embedded in a guy like Halliburton. It's it's embedded in a lot of their players nothing they do each of these guys nothing takes long to do it. And that is why I think they're so hard to defend because there is no situations where the ball gets stuck. It's not over dribbled at any point. I actually thought this is crazy because I watched the entire game. And a lot of times when I'm watching the game, I'm so like dialed into just watching it, taking notes, mental notes or written. I'm not really checking the box score very often. And a lot right. of times I don't have to because maybe I'm watching a particular broadcast, you know, and they'll give you the numbers as the game's right. going on. Yeah, that's 18 for such and such. That's his eighth assist, whatever. So I'm not really checking the box. I didn't particularly feel that this was a game in all the ones I've watched Halliburton play this year that I would have said, you know, he was particularly aggressive or like really, you know, had the impact with his pace and pressure offensively yeah. that I see him have. And yet, at the end of the game, I look up, he's got 21-12 and one turnover. And it's just like this is a sensational stat line for any point guard in the NBA. And, you know, I felt it was an, like an understated game for him. There were other guys I felt like that were more obvious with their aggressiveness. Siakam, Isaiah Jackson was sensational in this game, filling in for Miles Turner. Yeah, he, he he's was. Becoming a yeah. Guy, yeah, he's becoming a guy more and more, Adam, that I'm just like, man, they got to find more minutes for this guy. He has so the bounciest. Physical. Oh, he's so energized with his legs. He tries to dunk everything he gets yep. his hands on in the paint. And he's so quick off his feet in the way he finishes. So he's a lot different than Miles Turner, who's going to spend most right. of the game kind of camped on the perimeter at the three-point line. But Isaiah Jax Jackson played that way. I thought Nembhart played that way. I thought Doug McDermott, you know, out there to do what he does, had got 12 threes up in 23 minutes or 12 shots up in 23 minutes. I, I, he's out there to do one thing, so it's very decisive. I get space, I'm catching, I'm shooting. Everybody yeah. else, it's catch, look quickly for an opportunity. If you have a quick drive, take it. If not, move it on to the next guy. And I, I just think it's ingrained in Halliburton to play that way. He likes to play that way, and I think, therefore, it permeates the rest of the roster because he's the guy that's leading their offense. So um, this was this was just a super entertaining game. And there's a lot on both teams that I found interesting because you know, remember this is a this is basically a new Raptors team yep. that you have around Scotty Barnes. It's a bunch of new dudes. It's Trent yep. and Scotty Barnes, and then a bunch of new guys. Um, and so it was kind of fun watching how those guys are fitting in as well, Barrett and quickly and, and Bruce Brown. Let's get to them in just a little bit. I want to ask about the Pacers. So only ten fast break points in this game, and they give up forty to to Toronto. Both of those numbers are pretty shocking. You know, what are you see? What did you see last night that led to the Pacers not being able to get fast break points and giving up so many? I think the thing, the reason they gave up so many, it's it's gonna it's crazy in a game in which you give up that many fast break points and you only have eight turnovers. That those two things don't <laughs> yeah. coincide, right? Normally you get a team with those kind of fast break numbers, 
you're, you're expecting to see 18, 20 turnovers. Wasn't the case with Indiana. They just do, don't do a great job some nights of their initial commitment back on makes or misses. And I thought, uh, you know, when you look at Toronto's team, this isn't a prolific three-point shooting team. And, like, some of their key guys, the way that they want to play is they want to get in gaps. Scotty Barnes wants to get in gaps, and he's a big dude with good straight-ahead speed. So he would take the ball either as an outlet pass or off the glass. He's pushing. He's looking for gaps. Indiana not great at getting back and closing those gaps. And now you got a guy at the rim. Same with R.J. Barrett. That's how he likes to play. Quickly likes to play that way. Bruce Brown likes to play that way. So it was really about you know Toronto's style based on their personnel, and this is what they're trying to do offensively against a team that is not great at right. getting back and initially matching up and keeping the ball in front. It's really that simple. And by the way, Indiana doesn't care if you shoot quick. Like that's that's you know what they remind me of the uh the, the Phoenix Suns the Steve Nash teams in that way they yeah. don't really care if you take a quick shot even if you make it or if you put up almost eighty points in the first half the way they did in this game they just don't care they believe if you want to continue to play this way with us we are better at this than you are and at some point it's order is going to be restored in this game. Because we are better at playing this way. We're used to it. We've got better stamina. And we make better decisions playing this way throughout. And I think that's why, you know, Toronto had so many easy opportunities early in the offense. And Indiana, they don't do that well defensively. And they don't really adjust to it because it's they don't really care that much about that. They're trying to beat you in a different way. So I think that's really kind of what it added up to in this game. Because it wasn't like Indiana's throwing the ball over the gym and Toronto's getting runouts. These were like early offense opportunities that led to direct dribble drives or something off the offensive glass on an initial miss. Because the Pacers have had some guys in and out of the lineup since Siakam arrived, including Tyrese Halliburton, it's hard to judge them and to gauge them. You know, I think after the All-Star break, we're really going to start give a sample size to say, okay, what do they look like? Where are they going? But in these last nine games, they're 15th in offense, which is pretty surprising. They obviously were number one for most of the season. 24th in defensive rating. What have you seen from the pair of those two in the nine games they played together? Yeah, look, I, I'm not sure, you know, if 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 I was watching them every single night, every play, probably easier to figure out, well, how do they go from where they were to and they dropped off like these last nine yeah. games offensively? Doesn't really add up unless you just take into account there are some adjustments with some new personnel that they're still trying to figure out. And we you and I both said, you know, when they got Seattle, we both loved it. We love yeah. what he brings to their team. They need a guy like him. But at the same time, it is an adjustment to a player that plays that way. That He is now basically their second offensive generator. He right. is number two right behind Halliburton. So when he gets it, very rarely does Pascal Siakam just kind of catch it, put it above his head, and reverse the ball. Like he's going to do something with it and attack in the way that he likes to attack. So there's an adjustment period. They're not close to being as good as they are going to be on that end of the floor. Um, with Pascal Siakam and Halliburton, just, they just need more time together. And I think they're going to become a really, really important duo. They don't even run a ton of ball screens together right now, Adam, which is surprising because I think that ultimately is going to be something that's going to be very, very dangerous because Siakam just punishes switches because yeah. he's so good at catching the ball on the pop, turning a face into a smaller guy, and then putting his back on him and then getting into the paint with all that shiftiness and, and getting stuff up on the rim. They haven't really run a ton of that. Mostly it's Isaiah Jackson or Miles Turner setting most of those screens. Right. And and, and Siakam's sort of still on the wing. I think they're going to incorporate that more as they go, and the offensive efficiency will pick up. They've known all along they just need to be incrementally better defensively. At stretches in games, they yeah. need to be better. And I think if you look at possession by possession – I can say that they were more competitive in the fourth quarter of this game in what they were trying to take away. And the, I guess, a little bit more of a, of a desperation on that end of the floor to flood the lane, make it a little bit more difficult to finish around the rim because the Raptors had a number of plays they didn't finish that they were throughout the game. And, and, and getting out three-point shooters, which Toronto does not have a ton of. Yeah. I, I love your point about not running a ton of pick and roll between the two of them because that one of the things about that pairing that I think you should be excited about is the ability to run the pick and roll both ways. 
you know, Halliburton's kind of skinny and, and, and thin. I'm not sure he's going to be the greatest screener, but I still think there's opportunities to do that. Forcing point guards to guard the uh, screener in pick and roll is always smart because they're not used to doing it. It's not, they're not in that position a lot. And I think you could generate switches. So I do expect that they'll get to that more, you know, after the break. Another, you mentioned that Siakam turns drives into backdowns. He also turns backdowns into drives. And the reason I bring this up is <clears throat> you can draw in today's NBA, the way it's officiated, you can draw a lot more fouls off of face-ups than you can of backdowns. They allow a certain level of contact. And there's a handful of players, Jokic is one, Siakam's another, who can get the physicality going with his back, backing you down, and then turn and face, like at the last second, turn, pivot, and try to drive. And all of a sudden, that same contact that was allowed a second ago now is no longer allowed because it's face-to-face. -face. And there's players that are learning these little ways to game the system. And Siakam, I think, with that back down, back turn and face and now drive, it, that he's one of the guys that has figured that out. That's a that's a really good description of what he does. Um, you know, the other thing that he does that's kind of unique because he's not like a big muscular strong guy. He's obviously got wiry strength, but he's not a guy that's got a lot of mass on him. So how you say how well how does he catch the ball at the three point line or at twenty five feet, and the next thing you know he's down in just off the edge of the lane with his back on you, like without just like backing you up because he's not going to do that to most guys guarding him. They're going to be able to put their forearm and prevent that. It's because as he's first of all he comes at you when he catches it and you're closing out on him and his shoulders are square to you. He's got this head and shoulder weave going, right, with this inside-out dribble, and you're not exactly sure which way he's going to go, and he's got these big strides either direction. Yeah. Once you finally cut him off at about, like, 15 feet, that's when he goes into a spin. And he doesn't just spin and then just, like, pound it like Luca does and back you down, like, boom, like right. keep hitting you in the chest to displace you. As he's backing you down, he is, like, rotating his hips, and he's swiveling. He's just a very like slippery to get a body on him and get actual contact that impedes his progress. So the next thing you know, he's turning and spinning and he's at eight feet and he's getting something soft up on the glass. It's just he's got a very unique offensive style. And I've, I've been noticing it, you know, really since he started to emerge in Toronto. I, I always just was sort of enamored with watching him play because the, he's very distinct. He's very unique. Most guys that are that effective at his length in the NBA now that are wings, they beat you with like a really super live handle. They've got step right. back deep jumpers they shoot with a hand up. That's not really his game. His game is predicated on slashing and, and getting these awkward angled shots up when he releases it before you're ready. And then he can make a three, certainly. And he and it's good. He's good that he's, you know, be able to do that because you have to honor it enough that you've got to close out on him, which is what he wants you to do. But his game is unique unto him. I don't think there's a great comparison in the league for a guy that's a 6'10 wing that plays like he does offensively and is that effective without really heavily incorporating, you know, pull up uh, and deep jump shots off the dribble. But most of those wings, that's what they do that score at a high level. Yeah. The last guy I want to ask you about for the Pacers, the guy that, I, again, we don't I don't watch a ton of Pacers. I see him maybe every eighth game or so. But Ben Shepard has stood out to me in the last handful of times I've watched. In this game, he closes the last fourth quarter. He plays all 12 minutes, and he made some meaningful defensive plays down the stretch. Do you Did he stand out to you the way he did to me, and do you have any, any thoughts on Ben Shepard? Yeah, they like him a lot. I know that. You can see that they've got trust in him and faith. I mean, you know, he gives you a little bit more of, of like, quickness at, at that mm. spot. Um, and he's, they're starting to trust him more offensively. So he, he, his minutes continue to grow. They, they've got it. Listen, they, they, they've got Rick Carlisle has no shortage of options on a given night. You look yeah. at the number of look at the number of guards that they that they play that get like legitimate run for them. We between Halliburton and Matherin and T.J. McConnell plays a lot of minutes and Neesmith plays a lot of minutes. And you've got Ben Shepard there and Doug McDermott. Now, that's six guys I just named. Like and you're going to. On a given night, some of those guys might not play as much as others. Um, but that's the thing that Rick Carlisle's pretty good at, man. On a given night, he can punch the button depending on which three guys are playing well with whatever particular group, and he just gives him more options depending what you need. You need a guy to come in and, and energize you and pick up the pace. Well, here's TJ McConnell. He's going to just push it up the floor and make plays for people. You need some a little bit more shooting. Well, you got Doug McDermott there. You need defense. You've got Shepard. You've got Neesmith. 
Um, and then, of course, you got Halliburton there and, and Benedict Mathurin. They're, those are your two like better star offensive players. So they've got a lot of buttons to push. They've got guys in the front court now too with Isaiah Jackson's emergence. So and and then you got Toppin and and Myers and uh, Miles no. Turner. So look at the number of guys I just listed. Like none of those guys are guys you look at Adam and say, yeah, right now they're just not in the rotation. None of those guys. All of those guys are good enough to get minutes. It can be challenging for a head coach, but I think the way that they play, knowing that you're going to come on the court, you're going to touch the ball, and you're going to move. Right. You're not out there playing stiff not to make a mistake. Nobody on this team plays that way. I think maybe there's there's a good chemistry and camaraderie in that locker room that, hey, man, tonight necessarily wasn't my night, but it might be tomorrow night. Yeah. If we go over to the Raptor side, you know, Scotty Barnes last night goes for 29-12-8. and eight. I thought he had a, a great game. I was a little surprised that Achai Abaji and Kelly Olenek, the new acquisitions, played so seldom, like five minutes for Abaji and Olenek just seven. But what a, you, you said you had some notes for the Raptors. What really stood out to you about them? Well, it's my first real chance to see them. I haven't really watched them since the trading deadline. So I really was curious to see, like, how some of these new pieces fit in. And you're right. Kelly Olenek is a guy that I thought could have helped a lot of teams yeah. at the trading deadline because he's so smart. The way he shoots the ball, he's very good positionally, defensively, getting in the way and clogging up the paint on drives. Um, so, like, so, like, I thought a team like that was close would, would go for Kelly Olenek. I don't think the Raptors are that close. Surprise, he only played uh, seven minutes in this one. So the, the, the guys that I really got an opportunity to see were Barrett and Quickly uh, and Bruce Brown. And I wanted to watch kind of – how they fit in and what it looks like offensively. And I think that they actually look like, you know, they, they've got a lot of firepower offensively. And it's built around Scotty Barnes and his, his all-around unique game that he has. And I wanted to see, like, how the new pieces fit around him and, like, where are they going. A lot of that's going to depend on what you think Scotty Barnes' upside is, ultimately, as a player. I think this is going to be one of the better all-around players in the NBA. I don't know exactly what his upside will be, like, as a scorer. And I don't know that it's going to need to be if you've got enough around him. And he's hey, he's a twenty and eight and eight guy or twenty three and eight and eight type player. Then maybe you don't need him to get to twenty seven, twenty eight, thirty like like a lot of the you know top scorers in this league. And I kind of wanted to see how they all fit together. And I think what I saw first impression, I, I was impressed the way that they play. They put a lot of pressure on you. Now I'm not a huge RJ Barrett guy. Yeah. And he, guy. Say, he didn't play well in the fourth quarter. He had a pretty good stat line in this game, but he didn't play well when they needed him to be to be good late. And that's one of the reasons I didn't like him as much in New York because I didn't know if you could right. count on him because he's just got some offensive limitations. And it reared itself at an unfortunate time for them. But in general, Adam, I thought I like the way they play. They're fast and they're fun and they they've got a lot of guys that can attack you and get to the paint, and it's built around this one very unique special player in Scotty Barnes. I agree with you on R.J. Barrett. He's not my favorite mold of player, and he reminds me of his fellow Canadian, Andrew Wiggins, not necessarily in the way they play, but in that both of those guys feel like they are, in all of the situations they found themselves in, have been one spot ahead of where they should be. You know, a second guy when they should have been a third, a third when they should have been a fourth. And I kind of feel that way about R.J. Barrett. You're right. Not necessarily terrible until the fourth quarter when all of a sudden, in my opinion, he's elevated to a spot that I just don't have faith in him coming through. And, of course, in that game, he didn't. So that's kind of my analysis on him. Do you Any other notes uh, for the Raptors or for the Pacers before we move on? No, I think that, you know, I, I just do think about Indiana. You know, the, the East has gotten a lot more interesting yeah. with, with so some of Milwaukee's struggles. Yeah. And with Joel Embiid going down, so it it just seemed it just opened up a bigger conversation. And the Cavaliers are getting a lot of attention. The Knicks, who are just decimated right now with injuries, right. um, they're hoping to get healthy after the break and get Randall back. Whatever that's going to be, maybe right after the break, maybe a little longer. But they got other guys banged up now too. They just need to get right, and then we can really see what that depth means for the Knicks. But they're the two teams getting a lot of talk, and I just think there's some other teams that are just not going away. And Indiana's one of those teams. I, I just think. Yeah. I really believe Indiana could be a really difficult first-round series for somebody, if that's what you get. And I do think early in the series especially, as you're adjusting to this against this team, right, and you're, and you're, you're, you know, you're, you're not used to having to commit to that extent to get back and play that early, back on the floor defensively, that could maybe steal a game one in somebody's building if you're playing that team, right? And now – like there's a lot of anxiety built up if that happens 
I think later in the series, the more you play them, if you just have a better team and more talent and more top guys and you're not a complete joke defensively, I think it would become harder as the series went on for the Pacers. But early mm -hmm. on, they could throw a real scare into somebody. I think by maybe they split the first two on the road and then they go home and win game three. And you're like, wait, wait a second, man. We're like, you're down two one and you're one of those top seeds. So I just think that they're, they're, they're more than just fun. They are a tough team to play against. And I think they're getting more and more confident now that they've got this second player on the level of Siakam. So let's just continue to keep an eye on them and make sure that we don't get, you know, forget about them when we're having this conversation about that next tier in the Eastern Conference. I think they belong there. They have a pretty balanced schedule coming out of the All-Star break where they play the Detroits and the San Antonios, the Torontos again, but they also play Dallas and New Orleans. So I think it, we're going to learn a lot about them in the first couple of weeks coming out of that break. All right, that does it. It's fun to talk about uh, a couple teams we hadn't talked about recently, but let's take a break. And on the other side, we'll get into a, a couple teams that we have talked about a lot lately, including the Mavs, who got Derek Lively back and continued to go streaking. But then the Clippers bounced back from their loss with a win over the Golden State Warriors, and there was some very interesting stuff in that one. So we'll get to both of those games on the other side. But first, the NBA season is in full swing, now going into the All-Star break, which, by the way, you can bet on on. DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. Right now, new customers can bet 5 bucks and win 200 instantly in bonus bets, whether you win or lose. Three-point competition, one of the most fun ones to bet on uh, in All-Star. So download the, the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code ALLNBA. Bet $5, get 200 instantly, only at DraftKings when you use code ALLNBA. The crown is yours. If you have a gambling problem, call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 878-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. That's 467-369. In Connecticut, help is available. For problem gambling, call 888-789-777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly. On behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort in Kansas, 21 and older age varies by jurisdiction. Boyd, Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash basketball for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. Back here on the All-NBA Show, if you're enjoying the show, make sure to hit that like button for us. Help us grow the show and reach a broader audience. Also, subscribe to the channel so you don't miss any of the shows we're doing four times a week. It really picks up after the All-Star break when the games get a little bit more intense, a little bit more meaningful. And then I'm very excited, Legs, for when we get to the playoffs because that's when we'll be breaking down not just game by game, but really play by play, matchup by matchup. Uh, and it's right around the corner, man. We're starting to We're starting to get closer and closer. Let's get, though, to the Dallas Mavericks beating the San Antonio Spurs. The Spurs got off to a very hot start in this one. The Mavericks are the better team by a lot, and they're on the win streak. 116-93, to 93, you get the return of Derek Lively, so you get more or less a full roster out of uh, the Dallas Mavericks. What stood out to you about this one? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, start the game, San Antonio was great. Dallas was kind of, you know, a little sluggish. Um, I don't know that they expected to come out and take a shot like that from San Antonio early. So let me just start my very first impression in the first quarter. I turned. I was I was actually in D.C. last night. I, I was on Van Pelt um, after the after our two games on ESPN, and we're just watching games. I'm talking to Scott. I just I say, oh by the way, at the end of the first quarter, I say, oh by the way, just put it to bed. There's your that's rookie of the year because. The growth in Wembenyama, Adam, since the beginning of the season, and you know, I've I've been big on this whole time. Like, yeah. I think the competitive environment should matter. I do think impact on winning should matter, and that's why Chet Holmgren had a leg up early. Um, but the bottom line is this: what Victor Wembenyama is becoming, and like what how easy things are starting to look for him offensively, yeah. and even forget offensively, defensively. He, he broke up two lobs last night. They weren't even blocked shots. They were just broken up lobs that he had no business getting anywhere near. One of which was on the break, and he was he was behind the ball. And I think it was Luca threw a lob uh, to, I think, Lively or somebody at the rim. And Wembenyama was behind the passer when the ball was thrown and got there to get a piece of this lob before the, the guy could even catch the ball and finish it. And I'm just going, there's not another player in the NBA that's making that play. Not even Giannis. Nobody's making that play but Wembenyama. And then just offensively, how much better he holds himself in the post now. Yeah. He's got counter moves to what you do. He doesn't rush it on his first move to shoot something off balance. I just want to start with that. And look, he had 20 points 
with six minutes left in the second quarter. All right, that's how fast he got out of the gate. And as a result, Dallas was just completely back on their heels. They weren't making shots early. And then, what you know, we, we all know what happened. You go from down whatever it was, 15 or whatever it was early, and you win the game by 23 points. So from that point on, <laughs> it was just all Dallas, right? So um, San Antonio great early, and then Dallas, this was, you know, another chance. And I've seen them multiple times since they got Gafford, they got P.J. Washington, but now you got Lively out there as well. The depth, the athleticism of this team now, it, they're starting to look kind of scary, Adam. They're start, yeah. starting to look scary because of these two just forces offensively that when they play together and they play in sync the way that they have been, so difficult trip by trip to figure out how you're supposed to stop Kyrie Irving and Luka Doncic. And now you've got all kinds of options around them. They've got shooting. They've got athletes running at the rim. They've got better rim protection on the other end. They've got lob targets, multiple lob targets off pick and roll for both of these guards. Just impressed with what Dallas is doing. I know San Antonio isn't very good. It's a bottom feeder. I get it. It's not about that, man. It's about what, looking at Dallas and what they have added and what they look like when Kyrie is this locked in, yep. how good they look at him. They look scary and they look like a team that nobody in the Western conference should even think about wanting to play in a seven game series. I mean that. Is it largely, I mean, I'm guessing it's largely offensively, right? Because I keep thinking about this, like the Suns, you worry about them because, oh, they're just going to put up points no matter what you do, the Clippers. But I look at the Mavs and I kind of go in there. I know we're getting, I want to stay on this game for a little bit, but when you talk about stopping those three teams, Suns, Clippers, Mavs, I think the Mavs have an argument for they're just as hard, especially with Kyrie playing the way that he's playing right now, where he looks impossible to guard. That's the thing about the right now the depth and all the pieces they have by the way Dante Exum still to come back so they still are adding another piece but that's the thing when I look at them is I go every combination you throw out there I don't know how you stop it I think you're right that it's tougher with them and the reason is because these other teams like you look at let's take Phoenix for example three great offensive players right primarily going to hunt their own offense yep. Yep. Each of them, each yep. of them separately. That's what they're going to do. Really what, good Luka Doncic, what Luka Doncic does to you with his physical strength and the way he can manipulate the basketball against any sort of pressure, no matter what the personnel profile is in front of him, you want to put a small, quick guy on him or a big athletic guy, or a really strong guy. It doesn't matter. He's so strong with the basketball that he controls it's almost like a, like a gravitational pull on the defense where you have to stay committed to that, like leaning toward helping against him because he never looks like he's being pushed away to an area where it looks safe now, where you can kind of worry about your guy now more and about him less. You always have to stay sort of locked in on where he is because he just controls you with this handle and his size and then, you know, he's always at any point he wants to, he can shoot a step back three and get it off against anybody. And it's a dangerous lethal weapon. So his passing, his ball handling, his control of the game is different than anybody Phoenix has. And that's wow. why it's, I said it's scary to think about having to, to guard that. And, to, and then, like I said, Kyrie, he goes through these stretches, though, and he is frustrating for me from the standpoint. He's so good, it's frightening how good this guy is for a smaller guard and what he's able to do. But he looks so into it right now. Yeah. And there's other times he doesn't. He doesn't yeah. look as into what he's doing. And then he'll just disappear for a little while with either an injury or whatever. And you're just like, yeah. my goodness. If he harnesses, Adam, what he's doing right now since he came back from this injury, if he could just stay in that mode the rest of the season, Dallas can make an argument that they can win the Western Conference. That's, yeah. how, that's how tough they're going to be to stop. And you saw it last night. And now that they've added even more guys, even P.J. Washington, who didn't do much offensively last night, you know, he's just so much quicker out on the perimeter, like defensively, in what he does. And he's just super smart. And he just didn't get involved in the game. It wasn't his night offensively. It's fine. He's going to have nights where he is. He wasn't last night. Didn't need it. Uh, but the combination of Gafford and Lively in the middle, now you never have a minute of the game where you don't have an elite-level rim runner and a guy that's disruptive defensively on the other end of the floor with athletic ability. You know, it used to be, okay, 
You take Lively off the court, let's go to Kleba. Okay, different look there defensively. Go to Powell, totally different look. Undersized, not going to do as much. Lively and Gafford change what they do on both ends of the floor, yeah. and you never have to go a minute without it now. That's what I, how impactful I think that acquisition was. One of the things you mentioned Wemby's posting up earlier is Wemby had a couple like moves in the on the block where he just beasted uh, Gafford in particular. And one of the questions I have about them is as much as I like Lively and Gafford and either Washington, Derek Jones, those guys are all really skinny and not nearly strong enough in the post to guard a big post player. Denver, obviously a team I'm thinking about because they're the team you're going to have to go through most likely the reigning champs. And I look at that, and I watched Wemby the other, you know, last night backing down Gafford in the post, and I kept thinking, like, if, Ga- if he's backing you down, like, yeah. what's going to happen when you go against some of these bigger centers? Well, let's let's who are we talking about? We're really talking about Jokic, Jokic. right? That's what we're talking <laughs> about. And by the way, by the way, like I, we were talking about offensively, how hard Dallas is. That I can say the exact same thing about Denver. That's why I think those yeah. two teams because it's two man game. Right, I think you know, and look. Clippers have some of those guys too that are just those tanks, you know, Kawhi and James Harden. Like they're so strong with the ball, it's tough to get them off their game. The Clippers are, are kind of in this conversation, but when you're talking about just controlling the game with the with the ball in the hands of one player, it's 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 Luca and it's Jokic. So Denver has the same exact option. It's just in a bigger package, bigger body. Occupies a lot of the same areas of the floor though that Luca does. You can say the same thing about him. So I look, you're right, Gafford. If you're just talking about locking horns with a guy in the post and like trying to guard those guys down there, that's not necessarily his strength or lively. Those guys are much better when they've got some space as a weak side defender and they've got a free run at a driver. Now they're a factor, right? I don't know that anybody in the league has the answer for a guy, you know, like Jokic. Oh, sure. <laughs> sure. Hey, nobody has that. And like, look at the rest of the Western Conference. Who are you really going to be worried about in terms of that? Like a big yeah. guy that catches the ball with his back to the basket, and now what are you going to do? You know, most of these teams they, they they don't operate their offenses that way. They don't have the personnel to do that. They've got adequate centers, Nurkic, Zubac. Like these guys are are more than adequate centers. Like they finish stuff around the rim, but they're not getting the ball in the post with their back to the basket where they're going to do Nurkic occasionally, but he's not going to beat yeah. you that way. So look, you, you know, you can't you can't have an answer for everything, and I don't think anybody's right, right. got an answer for Jokic. Right. Well, Minnesota is a team, maybe Sacramento, you know, if you talk about a play in, if, if it comes down to that, they have guys that can do it. And then New Orleans, obviously, you're going to be dealing with Zion and Big Val, who's a great post player. So I only bring it up to say, even when teams are on a streak, you kind of look at them and say, all right, they're really good. And I think Dallas is really good at what they do. And the trades they made allowed them to be even better and more consistent at what they're good at. But it didn't necessarily make up for the things they're bad at. So a playoff series is going to be, can our best punch outperform your best punch? And let's be honest, at the last six games, I mean, it looks like the answer might be yes more often than not. And that's why they're so encouraging. Um, The other game to get to here, the Clippers beat the Warriors in a comeback win in the fourth quarter. They outscored them 44-28 to in the fourth quarter to take the win. I actually thought the Warriors had this because the Warriors have been on their own little streak here, but they collapsed down the stretch. What happened for the Clippers to take this one? Well, and and Steve Kerr alluded to it. They played – they they did everything they had to do to position themselves to win this game, right? They're up 12, uh, maybe about nine minutes left in the game. And from that point on, they had one defensive issue after another – in dealing with their high ball screen. And as a result, it wasn't necessarily because they were getting direct action scoring out of that. It was what they were getting out of the pass once mm-hmm. Golden State was trying to figure out how to deal with the two-man game. And Norman Powell got red hot in that left corner. You know, he just camped out there, man. You could have drawn a couple of lines on the court where his shoes go. Um, like, a, like when you go take dance lessons. And right. he just stood there and waited. And he didn't miss. And then, and then you could see on the other end of the floor, I thought that Golden State lost its patience. They weren't stopping them. And now a 12-point lead is basically gone in the blink of an eye. And now you've got this one possession great. back and forth game. And that Golden State wasn't as patient on the other end of the floor. They, 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 were, they were very quick trying to you know, find an answer offensively. And I think that actually helped the Clippers because they just got their hands on the ball again when they were humming – at a really high rhythm, but Golden State—it's a shame because they had this winning streak. 
They really played well. Clippers didn't have Kawhi. Like, and now you're up 10, 12 points early fourth quarter. If you're Steve Kerr, you're sitting there. You have to be really comfortable. Like where your team is, the where they've played. I don't care that they have Kawhi. It doesn't matter. We're going to keep this streak going, head into the break, feeling really good about the way we finish this stretch of our season. And then, you know, eventually you're going to get Chris Paul back and get, get an addition and things are starting to look up for you, right? You're, you just feel better about yourselves. Kaminga continues to play great. Your Clay has these splashy moments. Yeah. You know, he's yeah. not consistently there yet, but he played great against Utah. So it's it's in there sometimes. But, like, and, you know, Steph's been amazing. Wiggins, I, it seems like he's getting a little bit more confidence. Pajemski has been unbelievable. Yeah, been great. Right? Gary Payton just came back. Like, there's some upward trends for them. So that's why this is a real tough one to swallow that your momentum got stalled on a night when you had control of the game and they don't have their best player and you're not able to get right. stops down the stretch. This game to me sort of signified one of the things about the Warriors that's going to be so challenging. You just had a good clay game. We talked the last time we talked Warriors, we talked about how moving, you know, there was a mental hurdle to get over when Steve Kerr finally said, look, we're not going to close with Kerr, uh, with Thompson as our default closer. We're going to go to some other guys. But then you have a great game, and I felt like tonight they almost went to Clay too much. Again, like you have Gary Payton there, but Jemski did play a lot of minutes. But I think that balance, it's easy to say we're going to close with whoever's hot or you know go with whatever the matchup dictates, but they're still you still have to get that right. And I just felt like last night was probably one of those nights where Clay didn't have it again after having a hot game, then he didn't have it. And I look at I just love what Gary Payton and Pajemski bring. So I just think that's a tough balancing act for Steve Kerr. Yeah, I agree with that, man. It's it's tough because you you know look, I don't care how Clay Thompson's playing. At the end of the day, you're you're looking at this guy, this legendary player, and he's there. And it's not like yeah. he's hampered physically. It's just not yeah. happening for him offensively. Maybe maybe he doesn't feel great physically. I think most of it is psychological. I think most of it's between his ears right now. I I just think he's he's in a bad place rhythm wise, bad place uh, comp from a confidence standpoint. He can find it sometimes for little stretches, and he actually strung together some shots last night in the second half. After not doing anything in the first half, he strung right. together like a few shots, and you're thinking, okay, maybe he's going to you know be out there and help close the deal in this game. But then that was the last you heard from him offensively. So I think it is a tough, a tough call. Kerr, listen, Kerr at least has acknowledged that. Hey, just everybody, be aware. Like, there's going to be nights now going forward we might not be closing with him, and right. on a given night, I'm going to I'm going to play it by ear. I think. Peyton and Pajemski, both of those guys, the way that they play, as smart as Pajemski is. And by the way, that's both ends of the floor. He's really good yep. defensively, positionally. He's always in the right spot. We know what kind of impact player Peyton is. And then offensively, they, they're different. Peyton's going to be slashing, cutting, and, and getting stuff transitioned up above the rim. Pajemski's going to be the guy that's going to make great passes and, and step into his three. So they give you something that's just a little bit more right now than what Clay has given you, but they're both also kind of undersized, you know. So that's what I think yeah. Clay gives you six, seven legitimately on a wing against a, in a conference where there's some bigger wings you're going to have to deal with, and so that's the other thing I think Kerr probably wrestles with sometimes. But look, it's going to be it's going to be something he's going to have to figure out, you know, night in night out. It's going to be it's going to look different how they're going to close, and it's going to add Chris Paul to the mix eventually when he comes back. That's going to be enough more minutes that are going to go somewhere at the guard spot. You mentioned the Powell, you know, might as well paint the the lines where his feet stand in the corner. That's actually what stood out to me most about this game. My number one takeaway is the Clippers were able to get what they wanted in the clutch. Not just like, oh, we want to go here, but we're going to run an action and we're going to compromise them in some ways. And a lot of it was, to your point, kickouts to the corner and it was Powell. But it was also the timing on the baseline because guys will play the corner but they can also sink in and play the dunker or just cut. When the defense is scrambling, you cut. Now you have a dunk, which is actually even better than a corner three to get the sure thing. And I just felt like they were getting those shots every single time in the clutch where it was, all right, kick out to wide open shooter, drop off for the dunk, kick out to open shooter. It was. It seemed so consistent and the rhythm those guys have established in that offense is, is really impressive. And really, listen, let's give him credit. James Harden was sensational in this game. He was just tremendous. Um, we talk about controlling a lot, controlling the action, dictating terms. And that's what James Harden was doing. And, yeah. you know, he, he he made some very difficult shots in the first half. Like he had, he made some jump shots where guys were draped on him. 
And, you know, he was knocking him down. And, and you could see a little bit of frustration on the part of the Warriors, like thinking, like, well, you know, there's not much more you could do against that. And then he became more of like a playmaker the last half of the fourth quarter when this game got out of control for the Warriors. And it's because of his inability to, you know, take the ball out of his hands or get him off balance. He got what he wanted to. And Powell had four of those, by the way, I think in the last six minutes of the game. He made four corner threes. Um, that really was the, was the difference in the game. And they were giving up something because, look, the Warriors play small. You've talked about it a lot. You think that's the best small lineup you know, right. that there is. Well, defensively at times, that means you have to commit extras to the paint. And when you have to do that, it gives up those corner threes. You're susceptible to it, and they took advantage of it. They also got beat on the offensive glass late in a big possession with uh, a smaller lineup on the floor. So I, I just think – that's still a drawback for their team. I, I do like the way they're playing. They're playing better. I don't know that that's enough necessarily where they're going to you know get into the mix out west, but they're still a very interesting team to watch and continue to watch you know to see if, if there's if there's something left in them where they can say, hey, you haven't heard the last of us this year in the Western Conference. Yeah, I'm buying the, the Clippers, though. On that side, I just – the yeah. way they play, teams that can get those kind of consistent looks, man, I just I, – I really am impressed with them. And maybe you could say, you know, cover the Nuggets, concerned about them. Uh, speaking of the Nuggets, they fall for the third time in a row last night. They were limping into the All-Star break. Two blowout wins, one to Sacramento, one to Milwaukee. Last night, a shorthanded, no Jamal Murray, no KCP, so missing their backcourt – but they completely collapsed down the stretch as the Sacramento Kings on a second night of a back-to-back -back of their own. De'Aaron Fox takes over in the clutch and wins this one. Um, Denver held their own up until the last, I don't know, two and a half minutes of this game, and it was a haymaker. What do you make of, like, Denver we know. They're the reigning champs. We see them at their best. What do you make of it, though, when a team limps to the All-Star break the way that Denver is with two blowout losses and then a home loss against a team on a back-to-back? Uh, I honestly don't make a whole lot, a whole lot of it. I, you know, I think, I think there's, there's psychologically something about the all-star break, like being right around the corner yeah. for a team that has their sights set on what Denver does, that maybe these are some tough games to play going into the break. Um, there's just, it, you know, you're going to have like a week off. You get, it's a big distraction. And, right. you know, so I'm not too worried about it now. You know, they 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 play like this in you know mid-late March. Yeah, we got a conversation. Let's see, let's see what happens with a team. Because here's what's gonna happen after the break. These teams come out of the break, and the teams that are serious about thinking that they can do some serious damage this year or potentially win it or get to the finals, or maybe you're gonna see a different level of focus and approach from those teams coming out. Because at that point, it's almost like literally. You know, in the Northeast here, up in Pennsylvania, you got the, the Pocono Mountains. And sometimes when you drive up there, we used to go up and go skiing, snowboarding as a family. And you have to go through these long tunnels like to go through some of these mountains, man. And it's and these are long tunnels to get through these mountains. And it's like when you come out on the other side of the last one and you can finally start to see, like, where you're headed, like, those are the peaks. Those That's where we're going to be snowboarding on that pretty soon. And you get this adrenaline rush, man, that it's there. I yeah. think that's what happens coming out of the break for those types of teams. Yeah. They're, they can smell it. It's like it's right there. It's almost March. You get to March now, you start thinking about spring. You start thinking about tightening things up for this playoff run. I'm not too worried about Denver right now, really, at all. I think I think I think it's more important. Other teams are finding continuity and rhythm right now with some of the changes that they made and pieces they added. I'm not too concerned about Denver right now at this time of the year. I'm just not. Let let me see what happens here those first couple weeks after the break and once they're fully healthy. Legs, what kind of snowboarder were you? Not very good, but I got, listen, I got to the point, because here's the thing, I couldn't do it until I was, you know, much later in life because I was too scared oh, yeah. about like, tearing my knee off. Like, not yeah. only that, it's like literally like was like excluded in your contract in the yeah, NBA. Right. Like I wasn't allowed to do it. Um, right. And then, you know, I got older and I was like, I started to ski, got pretty good at skiing. I was like, okay, I kind of like this. I got into it. Then I met my wife and and she really, she had never snowboarded. I want to snowboard. So let's just do that together. She kind of got me off the skis on the snowboard. I found it to be significantly harder. I can definitely, you know, I'll get down. I'll fall a couple of times. I can go, you know, I'll, I'll do it. I'll hang in there. 
But here's the best part about it. For me, it always is. Give me f- about four runs, right? Especially if you go out west, like to, to Colorado, man. Like that was yeah. totally different level than the Poconos are all ice. Like you hurt yourself every <laughs> time you fall. It's powder out there in the Rockies, baby. We went out there for a trip, and these runs are so much longer to get to the bottom. Like I'm about four of those, and then I'm, I am absolutely siding up to the bar. <laughs> And I'm going to be at the bar for the next two or three hours. Go. That's kind there of like the best part of the trip. So I, I, yeah. I really enjoy it. I didn't get to go this season, though. I missed out. You're going to have to make it out here to Colorado sometime soon. Yeah, um, definitely, man. So the Pelicans, last one I'll talk to you real quickly about. The Pelicans beat the Wizards last night. No surprise there. They went at home 133 to 126. So after winning a game 98 to 86 or whatever, now they have a shootout and get a win. But the news that I want to ask you about was Dyson Daniels out for four weeks. He had a meniscus injury, had surgery, and he's going to miss four weeks. It's a small, you know, he's a bit player. He's a role player. But I kind of, one of the reasons I like them is because of him and what he brings. I feel like this is one of those under the radar things that when you talk about a team like the Pelicans that is kind of fighting for position, hanging by a thread, I feel like this one might be consequential, you know, if he misses four or five weeks. I think that's a really good point. I mean, he's playing 22 minutes a night. So, you know, yeah. these are significant minutes. You're not talking about a guy that's playing like, you know, 12 minutes. Like you can figure right. out a way around that. Um, somebody else gets an opportunity to extend guys by two minutes each, and there you go. It's different when it's 22 minutes. And he's, been, he's become an important player for them. So I, I agree. And look, everybody's dealing with it. You go up yeah. and down every roster in the league, you're, you know, you're dealing with it in some way. This is one that probably a lot of people would, it would just kind of slip right on by him and not realize that was a big deal to the Pelicans, but I agree with you. I think it is. Um, um, that does it for today. We've got one more night of games legs tonight. What do we have? It's not very many. It's the Bucks and the Grizzlies, the Warriors yeah. and the Jazz. Man, the Warriors Jazz again. The schedule. This well, that's so the makeup game from. Uh, oh, where, that's the makeup game from uh, the, the one that they missed when their assistant coach passed. So they're making that game because normally there's only two games on this night before All Star right. Weekend, and and actually. I was even – usually those are two really good games. I was surprised because I, I looked at the schedule last night myself before I went to bed. I'm like, well, let's see who's playing tomorrow night. Bucks, Grizzlies. Now, look, on paper, yeah. you know, you're thinking that's John Morant. And that's, right. yeah, okay, maybe that's that's yeah. obviously what they were thinking. You would think maybe the league, like, should flex these yeah. games because these are, these are heavily watched games the night before All-Star yep. Weekend. And then T-Wolves, Blazers. I'm not sure what they were thinking there. I don't think anybody expected the Blazers to be very good once Lillard was gone, but there, there you go. That's what was scheduled. And then you throw in Warriors jazz. So that ends up being the best game of the three. And it's a makeup game. You're, you're right, man. We might have to get creative with our show tomorrow. I'm sure we'll have an opportunity to preview some of the stuff from all-star weekend. And you know what? This is the thing about the NBA, man. The thing about competition, you never know. One of these games is likely to turn out to be pretty compelling, uh, but that'll be tomorrow's show. We appreciate everybody hanging out with you. Um, Okay, I guess I froze. Uh, I appreciate everybody hanging out with us. We got another show tomorrow before the All-Star break. So do us a favor, hit that like button, subscribe to the channel, and we'll see you then.